for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats, and place your entry. You could turn $10 into $250. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/fan and use code FAN. That's code FAN at prizepicks.com/fan. Must be present in certain states. Visit prizepicks.com for restrictions and details. Hi, friends. I'm Tim Whitaker, and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. On Martin Luther King Jr. Day, Charlie Kirk, the founder of Turning Point USA, tweeted that it was time to expose who MLK really was, arguing that his legacy has become a myth and that the civil rights movement was a huge mistake. That the country made a mistake when it passed the Civil Rights Act. Also true. Once a week we talk about why the Civil Rights Act was a mistake. While this might seem shocking to some, my guest, pastor and historian Dr. Bobby Griffith, joins me to demonstrate how Charlie's words are actually right in line with the historic and unfortunately very Christian tradition of opposing civil rights in America in favor of maintaining white supremacy. Hi, TNE listeners. This is Cherry Rodriguez from Bella Vista, Arkansas. I started supporting the New Evangelicals as a monthly donor back in 2022 after hearing Tim's interview with Dan Miner, who pastors an affirming church in Florida. Tim asked Dan what he sees as the way forward, and Dan put it bluntly, churches and organizations doing the most harm in Jesus' name are well-funded. He challenged listeners to give to work we believe in that holds evangelicalism accountable. I made my first donation to TNE that day and have since joined the fundraising team. This is work I believe the world needs, and I'm honored to support it as a monthly donor. So I, I, I want to hop right into it. It's no secret. I've covered this extensively on our channels that an article from Wired Magazine came out detailing that Charlie Kirk had plans to do a pretty big smear piece to discredit Martin Luther King Jr. on MLK Day. And, and this piece was very interesting because I was at America Fest and this piece has some quotes from Charlie at that same event that I did not hear him say, including saying essentially that the the civil rights movement was a huge mistake. Passing the legislation of the civil rights was a huge mistake. And that MLK was not a good person and that we have to we, we, we have to call it out as truth, even when it's unpopular. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I'm not a scholar, okay, but I, <laughs> I've read just enough to know I've heard that language before. I've heard that yeah. language before. It sounds awfully familiar. And then so you are someone who studies this stuff. Does that language sound familiar to you? Yeah, it sounds really familiar. It's amazing how the more things change, the more they stay the same. He doesn't really say anything different than what you find in fundamentalist and evangelical discourse in the 1950s and 60s. 
with the exception of maybe Billy Graham and a few others, that if it was today, they would be called, you know, the the elites, which is what they were being called at that time as well. And, and that, and that, that sort of first generation of evangelicals in the fifties and sixties, they were rebranding themselves beginning in the late 1940s. They are rebranding themselves with the term neo-evangelical. So they aren't called fundamentalists anymore, but on paper have the same views theologically, maybe not culturally, but theologically they're there. Yeah, I, I there's a great book, The Bible Told Them So by J. Russell Hawkins. Yeah. Really amazing read, very accessible book for people like myself who were homeschooled for nine years, right? And in the book- Which I mean, curriculum did you use? Oh, I've used Paces, I've used Becca, I've okay. used Bob Jones at one point. So I've, I'm, I'm totally a product of all that. And yeah. in Russell's book, he does a great job showing you how- in during the civil rights era and before white evangelicals were one of the largest people groups that staunchly opposed integration. They were uh, completely against it in every way, shape and form. And whenever pastors came out in favor of it, a lot of times those churches died. The people just left to find churches that were segregationist. Yeah. And, and a great example, Southern, Theolo- Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville invites MLK to come speak at chapel. I can't remember the year. I want to say it's early 60s, somewhere around there. And a lot of the Baptist churches around that area in that community want to protest that. And in sort of Kentucky Baptist Convention politics and denominational politics, they want to fire the professor who invited him. Wow. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. What is some of, what is some of the, some of the talking points that were being used at that time to discredit the civil rights movement, what MLK was doing, et cetera. Yeah. So just a couple things. And it's, you know, I, I watched uh, a little bit of Charlie Kirk's, this is what, how we're going to take down MLK video. And he echoes a lot of the discourse from the sixties. So I'm referencing a pamphlet that was called The Bible Versus Civil Rights that was produced Mm. in 1964. And a couple of things that they say in it is that the Civil Rights Act of 64 places human rights above property rights. And so the argument behind that is that within the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, it will lead people and churches with the inability to use their property as they wish. Now, that sounds great on the surface, but then you have to ask yourself the question, inability to use their property, you know, for what reasons, right? And so, and this is not simply relegated to the South, though it's more prominent in the South, in a lot of Southern churches, and there were some Northern churches that would, that are today evangelical at the time then in the 50s and 60s would have been evangelical. You have in Deacon manuals, for example, and some of the large steeple Presbyterian churches in Mississippi and Tennessee, in the deacon manuals, what to do if an African-American family shows up, how to keep them from coming in the door, how to usher them out. You have in, in the discourse over property rights, some of the things that they say is that if the Civil Rights Act says that we can't, you know, discriminate, you know, it's on race, religion, now that includes sexual orientation, but for whatever reason, we won't be able to use our property as we wish. So that means you can't have a whites-only counter anymore, right? 
You can't mm. choose the race of the person that you're selling your home to. That's what they're afraid will be taken away, right? That's what it means when they say property rights. The other thing they say is that it violates the First Amendment with the free exercise of religion. And then again, you've got to peel that onion, that layer of the onion, like free exercise of religion to do what, right? <laughs> right. And it's right. to prevent people from coming in the church, the the, the building. And, and, and part of the sort of backdrop to that isn't only just pragmatic politics, right? There's a theology behind this. I'm specifically thinking of, of a journal article written by David Chappelle about prophetic religion. And one of the things he notes is that the people, the, the ministers, the pastors who supported segregation in, in the South and even in the North, they, they did it not just for political re reasons, excuse me, for political reasons, but they had a theology behind it. The more you believed in a literalistic interpretation of the scriptures, the higher likelihood you were to teach and preach segregation. So you have, for example, Criswell, who's the Southern Baptist leader. He's the pastor of the largest Baptist church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. He preaches segregation, citing the Apostle Paul from Acts 17, speaking that God ordained the boundaries. Yeah, You have Southern theologians who say, that the Old Testament, when it talks about Israel being separate from the nations, that that says that segregation is a normal part of the human story. And so there is a theology behind the opposition to the Civil Rights Act. It's a crappy theology, we would say, but there's also sort of political reasons behind it as well. You are, you know, one of the things that they talk about is that integration is going now going to be forced. And if we force integration, we are putting communitarian standards over individualism. You know, we, we often quote Bob Jones as one of those people as well. I have one of his sermons saved doing that same thing of pulling right. acts and so on, right? To draw the comparison. I think now people like, for example, Charlie Kirk would say, well, what's happening now is re is reverse racism, right? Now it's this DEI stuff that that is privileging other people and now whites are the minority, which honestly is very much a David Duke talking point. Like if you watch any of David Duke's stuff in the 80s yeah. and 90s, he's saying the same thing. So for you, when you hear that, what does that make you think of as someone who's a historian on this stuff? Yeah, again, you want to talk about sort of innards. You have fundamentalists in the 1960s like Billy James Hargis and Carl McIntyre in Carl McIntyre, for example, is in New Jersey, born in Oklahoma. He's a pastor of a fundamentalist megachurch in New Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia. 1400 to Collingswood. I'm like 15 minutes from Collingswood. Holy moly. Bible Presbyterian Church Collingswood was once a, just a gigantic church. He ran a multi-million dollar operation that was political, had a radio program that was on over 600 stations by 1964. What we know is that Hargis, McIntyre, and others communicated with the Klan, Arkansas, Alabama, and Georgia Klan dens, and advised them how to use religious language in their opposition to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. 
We don't have exactly what they said because what we know is is from FBI files because they were smart enough not to commit anything to paper. We know there was correspondence. But what we know from the FBI files is you have, and you might say, oh, fundamentalists. Well, Carl McIntyre, Bob Jones, and these other guys were invited to the meetings that formed the National Association of Evangelicals. It was just that they didn't want to abide by some of the main sort of tenets of what became the NAE, right? So like, it's not like these are the sort of crazy cousins, right? They're getting the same fundraising dollars from J. Howard Pugh that Billy Graham is. So this is not like, oh my gosh, these crazy fundamentalists, we have nothing to do with them, which is you know, coming out of the Iowa caucuses last night. It was like full of no true Scotsman's fallacies. Well, it really wasn't, real evangelicals that voted for Trump because real evangelicals would never do that. Just like you might hear once Kirk gets further on in his little agenda, real evangelicals would never oppose the Civil Rights Act, except they did. And we've got the right. data. The 1964 presidential election, for example, we have po political science data that shows the 1960 election, which was Roman Catholic Kennedy against Quaker Nixon should have been overwhelmingly Nixon when it came to what we would classify as fundamentalists and evangelicals. It was about a 50-50 split. Hmm. 19, where the only, where, where Goldwater's main talking point, Reagan's nominating speech for Goldwater was an anti-civil rights speech. He just used language like urban America. And that's, hmm. you know, means African-Americans. It flipped and about 65% of white fundamentalists and evangelicals voted for Goldwater. It yeah. was civil. He made his campaign about civil rights. So you can't say invent this time where evangelicals were for it. Like the NAE itself wouldn't take a position. They said, well, this doesn't really affect churches. We're not going to comment on a political matter even though the founding the foundations of the NAE was to have an evangelical voice in the seats of in the halls and seats of power yeah yet they wouldn't comment about it christianity today isn't negative about it and then they support the civil rights act once it's passed do they do anything in their editorial page to convince evangelicals to like go all in they don't Friends, it's no secret that Christian nationalism is on the rise and threatens the rights of all of our neighbors. You also know I'm a big believer in shared values over shared beliefs, and you know that we are committed to working together with all kinds of folks to protect democracy in 2023. That's why I'm proud to let you know about the Summit for Religious Freedom hosted by Americans United taking place in Washington, D.C. April 14th through the 16th. I'm going to be there, and I'm so excited because keynote speakers include Anthea Butler, author of White Evangelical Racism, who we've had on the show before, and Representative Jamie Raskin, a vocal opponent of authoritarianism and Christian nationalism. The Summit for Religious Freedom is a big tent full of all kinds of people from different walks of life and holding different beliefs, uniting under the shared value of protecting the rights of all of our neighbors. So grab a ticket. Let's hang out and learn all about the ways we can resist Christian nationalism and protect freedom for all. Go to thesrf.org for more information. And if you can't make it in person, that's okay. You can always grab a digital ticket and join us from virtually anywhere. Get it? That's 
T-H-E-S-R-F.org, hosted by Americans United for Separation of Church and State, April 14th through the 16th. I'll see you there. Jake Knapp is the inventor of the design sprint and the New York Times bestselling author of the book Sprint. He's also the co-founder of Character, a venture fund for early stage startups. How and why did you start using Miro? I came from this position of thinking, I don't want to be doing stuff online to thinking now when I do a sprint in person with a company, it's like, we're going to use Miro, even though we're all in the same room, because that's a better way for us to get this work done. As an investor, we're basically investing in their ability to solve problems. We're saying, we think this group of people is going to be able to solve a problem in a really great way and create value by doing it. And actually, you need to give people the tools that can help them make decisions, help them collaborate, help them visualize and see things in a different way. And Miro does all those things. So to me, at least as an investor, I'm thinking, give the team the tools that are going to help them think, that are going to make the most, brighten their, their skills as smart folks. And Miro is at the top of that list. Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats, and place your entry. You could turn $10 into $250. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/fan and use code FAN. That's code FAN at prizepicks.com/fan. Must be present in certain states. Visit prizepicks.com for restrictions and details. This is this is a very important point for the audience because yeah. I think a lot of us for a long time, even in our evangelical spaces, just sure. assume that, well, who who would oppose the Civil Rights Act? <laughs> and as you listen to people like yourself, it turns yeah. out that our own tradition historically was one of the loudest voices that opposed it. So I I know for me, yeah. when I saw Charlie's tweet about MLK, which he says, by the way, here, here's the full tweet. He says, who was MLK? A myth has been created and it has grown totally out of control. While he was alive, most people disliked him. Yet today, he is the most honored, worshipped, even deified person of the 20th century. Today, we're going to tell you the truth and explain how this myth was born. Happy Monday. And when I read that, I, I went, whoa, like, where is this coming from? Yeah. But then I thought, well, there actually has been a pretty long tradition in the spaces that Charlie is a part of that have always opposed it, even if for maybe a, a good chunk of time, it was more of a dog whistle as opposed to this very just direct, blunt way of saying MLK is not the hero that you think he is. We have to discredit him. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. And, you know, when he was alive, right, most of the actions toward MLK on the part of evangelicals, if they were, you know, for him, it was the, the most you get is what Billy Graham does, right? And, mm -hmm. and with Billy Graham, there's a wonderful dissertation about called Billy Graham and the race problem. It was never turned into a book. It, it was done at the University of Kentucky. You can get it somehow if you have, I don't know how you get it other than downloading it from a, I don't know, wherever you find dissertations. But one of sure. the things it points out is that, is that Graham is playing all sides of the civil rights movement, right? So he, you know, he famously integrates his crusades in the 1950s in Chattanooga, right? And he does that against, you know, behind him is his father-in-law, Nelson Bell, who is classified in the historiography as a racial moderate, right? Bell's a Southerner. He supports integration, but he doesn't want it to be too fast because it, it pisses people off. 
but at the same time, he knows that his sort of Southern tradition is in the wrong. And he is guiding Billy behind the scenes. Like, hey, you need to do this thing. But when it comes to King, Billy Graham, and I know you're not supposed to play counterfactuals as a historian, but I'll, I'll put on my pastor hat right now so I can cheat <laughs> okay. that rule. Billy Graham could have been at the March on Washington. He could have been a part of boycotts with King. He could have marched with King. He chose not to. Every time he appears with King, it is always in a safe place where the criticism will be minimal. The backlash will be minimal. King even asks him why he appears on stage in Texas with known segregationists. And he was like, well, I'm supposed to you know, present the gospel to everyone kind of a thing, you know, the mm-hmm. sort of a. Yeah. Don't you want people to hear about Jesus? You know, he Jesus right. jukes him if that's if that's still a term. And, and Graham it is now we're bringing it back. Okay. Graham <laughs> is sort of emblematic of like how evangelicals sort of institutional evangelicals treat the civil rights movement and King in particular. Any time, so like for the Southern Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Convention This is going to sound crazy in the year of our Lord, 2024. There was a time the Southern Baptist Convention could have been very close to being classified as a moderate or mainline denomination. Like they were inching toward it, right? 1970s, they have the most women pastors of any denomination in America. But then that conservative thing happens, fundamentalist really resurgence. But in the 50s and 60s, when the institutional Southern Baptists offer support for the Civil Rights Act, offer support for Dr. King, they are repudiated by the churches that are pastored and peopled by people who did not want it. If you want some of the things that people critique King on, Kirk is right. King was the most hated man in America, especially when he began to speak out, not about civil rights. People hated him for that. It was when he began to present his economic vision and go against Vietnam, his speech why I'm against the Vietnam War is probably one of the things that killed him, right? But these are things that people said about King. I'm reading directly from a historical document, open letter to Martin Luther King. The demonstrations that you bring fear. The, he says, the, the, the writer says, I was in Washington for the march, August 28th, 1963. Most white people stayed home that day. They were afraid of you and your leadership. You are causing, you are driving wedges, creating bitterness and hatred that will take years to overcome between the races. Your remedy is legislation, which will put more controls and restraints on the entire population, both, I'm quoting, white and, quote, Negro. He says he also says that that you are creating a non-freedom freedom because you're forcing mm. people to conform to a pattern and you don't like the present free state of society as we now know it. You're calling it the status quo. Mm. And like we're talking, this is 1964. We're talking segregation. He also says, and I think you you hear this discourse today, you are turning people away from the police. Mm. You present them in a bad light. I mean, we, 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 we could take yeah. any of those, map yeah, yeah, them yeah, onto yeah. Black Lives Matter, map them onto any 100%. kind of you know, uh, push for racial justice, and, and, and no one would bat an eye. 
No one would say, oh, that sounds outdated. They would say, yeah, that sounds like something that Tucker Carlson or Charlie or someone on the right would say. I mean, it, literally almost word for word in some cases. Yeah. And he, he also gets critique for, you know, one of the things, too, is like King brings, you know, nonviolent resistance, right? He critiques him for nonviolent resistance by saying you're still disobeying laws. It doesn't matter. And, you know, King's going by Augustine, right? King cites Augustine and unjust law is no law, right? And which is, you know, King knew his stuff. And, and, and this particular writer of fundamentalists who knew Billy Graham and Nelson Bell, J. Howard Pugh, all these folks, even Jerry Falwell, is saying that you cannot disobey even if you think the law is unjust. Wow. wow. But promises to disobey the Civil Rights Act. <laughs> right. Well, I, yeah. I mean, and this is this is maybe one of the great contradictions of the I call it the far right because I think conservative yeah. is too general. There are great conservatives who would agree sure. with like Russell Moore is a good example of that. You know, someone who would obviously support the Civil Rights Act. But, you know, the far right is really good at at, at playing the game of when it's convenient law and order, when it's not convenient. We have to we have to reject yeah. tyranny, right? I mean, the insurrection is a good 100%. example of this, and there are other cases. I mean, many of them where, oh, this person is a god fearing patriot for breaking the law this way, but that person who is resisting the law is is not following law and order and is destroying America. And, and again, it I really want the audience to grasp how unfortunately, and I, and I said this in my interview with, with Jamar Tisby on Monday, how this yeah. is not new. We are on the merry go round of this lunacy, even though it's the year 2024, right? We're still hearing the same rhetoric. Maybe there's some slight different language that, that that's more modern, but it's the same idea, which is sure. that, you know, there is government overreach that's trying to force people to get along. We have to resist that. Now they're calling it reverse racism in some cases, and we have to all just be colorblind and not see the color of people's skin. And then, they'll, of course, they'll quote out that one MLK quote out of context. Out and of it's context, like, wow, right? we... Yeah. We could put that anywhere in, in, in the civil rights era, and it would make sense. The other argument, and you get this in evangelical spaces and fundamentalist spaces in the 50s and 60s, is, and King even answered this, is the, 64, the Civil Rights Act is trying to legislate behavior, and it's trying to, and it's trying to address a spiritual problem for which there is no legal solution, that the only solution is revival. And once revival happens, then we will not hate each other. Except for the fact that in our own nation's history, you can point to the times where church attendance was the highest, right? So on the eve of the Civil War, nine, we had enough pews to seat 95% of all known human beings who were in the states. 95% of people could have sat wow. in a pew. Church attendance was high. And it sucked if you were a minority, a woman, if you were enslaved, right? That is no, the second great awakening didn't solve slavery. It, it released a generation of people who fought it and who fought mm. for rights, which is what real revival does. The, the thing in the sixties, fifties and sixties, what they're saying is, well, if enough people, if enough people become Christians, then racism will go away. It's kind of like how occasionally, and I don't know who, I might be stepping on toes. Occasionally, some of our very large, and I'm not going to name names, our very large mega church pastors will have to do, you know, the race sermon 
to their 50, mm-hmm. you know, 30, 40, 50,000 people. And typic, and the phrase that will get used is it's not a skin problem. It's a mm-hmm. sin problem. That comes totally. straight out of the fifties and sixties of people who were against the civil rights movement because they said, you are trying to use the law when only conversion can fix it because they saw, and you still see this. If we just have enough conversions, that will solve all the problems. And part of that comes from this captivity that, that evangelicalism since the enlightenment has had that accelerates in our ma in, in modernity of individualism. They seek individual solutions to community problems. And the arguments against civil rights was that this takes away our individual rights. And it's like rights to do what? Be jerks, totally. you know, like discriminate, totally. discriminate. And that comes from a very individualistic reading of the texts and scriptures that it's yeah. me and my and my personal salvation will suddenly magically erase my racism without patient disciple without being involved in patient discipleship in the community. Right. Yeah. The religious right mantra is still used today, right? It's used today to discriminate against queer people and all kinds of things. I mean, it's the same, it's the same system, maybe just insert a different type of people group that is now the ones that are encroaching on our religious liberty. And again, I, I just think it's very important for us to be able to recognize that a lot of the stuff we hear today is not new. It's not. My name is Joseph Yu, and I am an Episcopalian priest, and I fully believe in what Project Amplify is trying to do, which is to amplify voices and theology, to offer a counter-narrative to the voices and platforms that uses the Bible as a leverage to marginalize, to exclude, and to dehumanize. Project Amplify wants to amplify voices and theology to talk about the love and justice of God and just how diverse and how inclusive our God is and, and the gospel is. So if you want to help provide a different narrative of what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Christ, please click the link below to donate. Thank you. Today, we discuss Miro. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now. Uh Uh-huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, gathering information. You get buy-in from every team. Uh, You know, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. That's M-I-R-O Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats, and place your entry. You can turn $10 into $250. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/fan and use code FAN. That's code FAN at prizepicks.com/fan. Must be present in certain states. Visit prizepicks.com for restrictions and details. 
I think what's interesting to me, and I would like your thoughts on this sure. before I let you go, Bobby, is it does seem like the dog whistling is fading and now people are just saying the quiet parts out loud. And two examples of this. Number one is, of course, this Charlie Kirk MLK, you know, smear campaign that he's he's openly admitting to and happy to do. But number two, when I was at America Fest, I heard the great replacement theory yeah. parroted over and over again. And it wasn't dog whistled. You know, I mean, I know in the past you could you might be able to hear bits of that if you knew what to listen for. But these are people, including Charlie, just saying it out. Hey, yeah. we're being replaced. The white population is being replaced by by immigration. I mean, I have clips on our YouTube channel of, uh, of, of that when I covered the whole event. And I'm like, you know, that is another level of just saying the quiet part out loud. And it seems like and maybe maybe my own recollection is distorted here, but the thought of someone openly quoting a David Duke piece of propaganda, because that is literally David Duke propaganda, would just be unfathomable even in my conservative Bush versus Gore days. But now here we are in 2024 and, and late 2023 when this happened, that's said out loud and evangelicals, largely speaking, aren't really outraged at all. In fact, I mean, as of this recording, Dream City Church is hosting Trump and Charlie to to do a big rah-rah-rah campaign. And I'm like, you know, these people are saying things that that should absolutely alarm very moderate conservatives who wouldn't agree with me on a lot of issues. Instead, it seems like the church is is regressing back into that, yeah, let's platform those people and and save America. And this is the historical problem is I tend to think that that isn't really a regress. It's just that because I know it's terrible. It's just that. So you find anti-immigration rhetoric, you know, they're talking in the eight in, in the floors of Congress that like Texas is Eden and being from Oklahoma, I would never think that, but you know, that Texas is Eden and is being polluted by Brown people. Like that was the justification for the Texas, Mexico war was, you know, manifest destiny. And you know, we think about certain dog whistles today. So America first, right? That comes from William Simmons, who rebirthed the KKK in the 19th. America first, 100% America, the idea of making America great again, the phrase law and order comes from that man. Flags in American churches comes from him as a way to show that you are not German during the First World War. Back to the Constitution, that phrase comes from William Simmons. Those phrases enter the discourse in the 19-teens and 20s, and they don't leave. Hmm. They don't leave. And immigration, people in the 1950s and 60s were terrified of... Mexican immigration, Eisenhower, in fact, had a horrible law that I won't even, a horrible policy that I won't even say because it has a terrible word attached to it to restrict mm. Mexican immigration. And, and largely what's in these fundamentalist and evangelical circles, what terrifies them about racial integration because of their understanding of sort of biblical literalism is that you would dilute races. That's their fear. I don't know if that's Charlie Kirk's fear. I tend to think he it is. There is this fear. You find this fear of replacement in the protocols of the elders of Zion in the teens and 20s. You find this fear of replacement after the, the Second World War as people are trying to, to like 
rethink about life, especially during the, the height of the civil rights movement, you have this fear. And I'll, and, and I'll tell you what this fear misses in, in the 50s and 60s. And this is something that gets talked about a little bit in the history. I don't know if Jamar talked about this. And this is where people miss the, missed out. David Chappelle, not the comedian, the scholar at the University of Oklahoma, who I studied under, he writes this wonderful book called A Stone of Hope, Prophetic Religion and the Death of Jim Crow. And he argues, and the evidence is there, that lay preaching in the Black church in Mississippi and Alabama is what pushed the civil rights movement to achieve what happens in 64 and 65, that that, that people misunderstand it when they only look at it as a pure political project. But with yeah. leaders like Fannie Lou Hamer and others, it is a 100% spiritual project. And there was this sort of like revival happening that the people who say revival is needed, that the social action that spilled out of this revival is what Johnson signs in July of 64. And people who were angry about it missed out on that. They yeah. missed out on that. That's uh, very helpful. Again, it's it's so key for us to realize that these are not new things. I'm yeah. kind of curious, before I let you go, my last question for you, because you are unique in that you wear the hat of both a pastor and a historian. So you're Jeez. kind of, you, you have a foot in both of these worlds. Yeah. I, I like asking some of my guests this when appropriate. I think this is a good time for it. Is there really anything redeemable about this evangelical culture that so many of us found ourselves in? Because <laughs> the more I talk to people like yourselves, you know, who, who yeah. have the the receipts and like have the knowledge of where we've been historically, it just seems like everything that 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 has culminated in Trumpism is mm -hmm. a feature, not a bug. And my estimation is that is that Trump has only blown the doors off of what is to come. I think that that this is the beginning of Trumpism. I think Vivek and Tucker Carlson, other folks like that, are next in line to push that space even farther down that that rabbit hole of madness. So for you, when you look at this stuff, do you just see, yep, as a historian, <laughs> this has been where we've always been heading? Yeah. Or do you think that, that I, I'm thinking about, I guess, to wrap it up, Isaac Sharp's book, the other evangelicals, yeah. a really good book about evangelicals who have been in the movement for a long time, always dissenting, always trying to push things forward, but they tend to get snuffed out. What are your thoughts for 2024 in the future when it comes to the movement? So for me, I think my own, this is hard to say, but I'll say it, my own personal story of growing up racist and changing. I think of a Jürgen Moltmann quote that the Christian hope is a hope against hope. And that if you're not sort of, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you're not pressing against evil and the potential of people to change, then you don't have hope. I think about, you know, I was privileged. We were in Oklahoma City for about a decade. I was privileged to be on the ground floor of starting a, for all intents and purposes, racial justice nonprofit in sort of an even in a very conservative evangelical context and seeing people change their minds and lose their preconceived notions and change the way they thought. I had no idea that I was discriminating against people or, you know, I had no idea that fast food places paid single black moms in debit cards and stole half the money in fees. I had no idea. Like there are, I had no idea that payday loan places were so prevalent. 
that's not to say that access to information will change, but I think that people can change. I don't want to give up on people, even though there are so many times you just want to. I know there are people who haven't given up on me. When I speak to organ like nonprofits and we talk about like what's a way forward, for me, a way forward is human solidarity and I hate to say this word, radical egalitarianism. And if we are committed to those two things, then we will fight for what's appropriate, push toward equity and righteousness. And it feels sometimes like a losing battle, I guess. But at the same time, I've got friends like Jamar Tisby who, you know, I'm coming at this stuff from a white guy's perspective. And there will always be another gig. There will always, you know, I won't have to suffer in the ways that other friends that I know have had to suffer. And I, I don't mean that to sound really cocky or whatever, but at the end of the day, I will use the advantages I've been given and whatever skills I have to try to push people to what it means to love their neighbor, how they yeah. want to be loved. And sometimes yeah. it means you piss people off. Sometimes it means people change. Sometimes it means people leave your church. Can't control what other people do. Yeah, I'm absolutely concerned at the direction because yeah. you know, the Iowa caucus just happened and some of the polling of evangelicals yeah. from 2016 to now, 21% of evangelicals at the Iowa caucus in 2016 voted, supported Trump this time around. So we're looking at what, eight years? It's about 50. Yeah. So, you know, it is, it's very frustrating to watch a movement that I grew up in that I love dearly yeah. first try and justify why they were voting for Trump. And now it's just full on approval and acceptance. And this is just our guy. And it's like, wow, this is where you want to push things. You know, I, I, I wrote a, a, a tweet thread thing. And I still stand by this. I said, white evangelicalism is the fuel that powers the car of fascism in America. Like it just yeah. is. If people want to argue with me, you can read Jason Stanley's book, How Fascism Works. You can read Madeleine Albright's book, Fascism. You just see the writing on the walls in terms of how this rhetoric works. Yeah. It's just very discouraging to witness, frankly. I also think, you know, putting the historian hat back on, one of the things that I strive for when I teach is... We need honest stories, and honest stories are going to make us uncomfortable. But if we don't sit in that uncomfortable place, we will never move forward as human beings. We will never be able to, and I'm getting this idea from Eastern Orthodoxy, we will never be able to image God to the potential to which he has called us collectively to image him. And Eastern Orthodoxy has a beautiful notion of human solidarity. That's why there were so many Orthodox priests marching in the civil rights era. They have this beautiful understanding that it's not one person who images God. It's the collective. It's all mm. of us. And because we all bring something different. And the more that we walk in his love, the more we are all better able to reflect that beauty of who he is. And you miss that when you're only focusing on what you yourself bring to the table. It's got to be all of us. I agree. Bobby, it was really great getting hey, you on fun. to help us uh, make the connections yeah. here between the past and the present. Let's keep in touch and we'll do it again. Yes. All right. Thank you.
Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another hundred meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com.